Just some quick little uh, discussion time. Uh, first of all, the CD. What did you think of the CD? That's awesome. Yeah. It's a good speaker. It's good. He is a good speaker. What grabbed you about it, though? I mean, what was something you'd sit back and say, I didn't know that before, or that helps me, or that helps me explain it better to other people, or? Which is what? Um, how they compared it to like different drug addictions and stuff. Mm -hmm. That was really interesting. And scientific. Yeah. People like science, so you can actually prove to them that it's causing a uh, like a, a chemical reaction uh, in their brains. That helps. What else? What it does to the like woman involved, like activism. Yeah. Especially when he says, you know, that people aren't, you know, nobody, nobody's hurt, you know, nobody's getting hurt, what's the big deal? Especially when he talks about, like, the, the one that the grandfather, right, with his daughter that died, she killed herself or whatever, and then he's like, it's just crazy to think about. People are still looking at her and lusting after her, and she's dead, you know? <clears throat> what else? Argument that sex is natural. Right. And like that was how hilarious. having an erotic moment with your laptop is not natural right. at all. I love what he's talking about. Uh, now I got caught looking at waterfalls. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. I'm looking at sunsets on my computer. And my wife caught me. Right. Or he's like, if it's so natural, then you know, why, what would it be a big deal? If somebody's just, you know, looking looking in on you and your wife having sex. That's natural. <laughs> what else? The effect that it has on the wife and how she feels like inadequate, like she <clears throat> is being compared to the women and how like she was, when she divorced her husband and she found the magazines under the bed and she wasn't sure if he was really having sex with her, if he was fulfilling right. a fantasy and just how hard that must be for <clears throat> wives. And the amount of objectification that goes into that, right? Yeah. I have a question about that. So let's say a man is addicted to that like well before he's married and he no longer watches porn does, how does that still affect him then someday when he does get married wait what <laughs> okay so let's say so he was he was is no longer hasn't been for a while gets married how does that affect well yeah i mean we we believe in redemption right so i mean if you start moving against something the, the, the brain rewires itself if you, <clears throat> if you work at it. So through grace, through hard work, through virtue, yeah, they, they, a man can come back to this beauty of, in a real sense, like virginity, right? I can't remember, was that, was that in here that we were talking about? The, there's a sense of virginity in which, like John Paul II talks about it as sexual integrity. Right, so virginity isn't so much the, the physiological thing. Because you could, you could be physiologically a virgin uh, and be a mess, right? But he's saying if you're sexually integrated is when you, you re, like retain your virginity. And so with that understanding, that's a beautiful understanding because even if you've had sex before marriage, you can still reclaim your virginity through sexual integration. And therefore, you can then live out that call to holiness and love as it was properly understood, <coughs> even though you may have screwed up in the past. So John Paul II's understanding of virginity, this kind of like nuanced understanding that it's more than just physiological. So you can have a guy that's never had sex with a girl in his life, but is totally addicted to pornography, and he's not a virgin. 
in the, with that understanding of the word. You know, he's been having sex like crazy in, one, in, in, in certain aspects. His, his brain is reacting in some of the same ways. You know, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's, the, that's why I gave you the CD to help, you know, yourself, others, whoever it can be, that, you know, it, it's possible to regain that level of holiness or that level of integration. And that might take a really long time. And that's where a, that's where a woman, I think, has to be very understanding especially the culture that we live in. I don't think she should be passive, but she needs to be understanding that a man if, if a man is struggling with this, and she really does love him, and, she, and he really does love her, but there's residual effects of sin, right? I mean, just because you, like, you were greedy your whole life, and all of a sudden you have a conversion, you're like, I don't want to be greedy anymore. Guess what? You're still going to have moments of greed, because it's, like, it's a habit ingrained into you. That's why we, you know, as Catholics, we believe in purgatory. You know, because there's these effects of sin that remain in us. And so the sin, like, and, and this is why people are like, well, I go to confession, and then, like, I just do it again. Or I don't feel forgiven. Those are the effects of sin that are, are like, weighing on you. So the sacrament of confession doesn't take away the effects of sin. It takes away sin proper. The effects of sin are stuff that you have to work against. That's why we say it's faith and works. So the faith part is God taking away your sin. And that's huge. But the work then is, is i got to do something to change my life. That's why in the act of contrition that you pray in confession, it says, I will confess my sins, do my penance, and amend my life. Amen. Then you receive absolution. Like some people will just pray that prayer. It's like it's kind of like coming out their lips. Like they do have, you know, prayers in mass or the Hail Mary or the Our Father without really thinking about it. But each confession that you walk out of, you should take, and it doesn't have to be a huge step, a small step. But for those of you that aren't Catholic, like when you turn to God and you're like, I'm sorry, that you do something to amend your life. You know, like this, in, in the area of pornography, that's a huge thing. You know, so what are you doing? Like I want to be free. I really do. But what are you doing to get free? That's the question. Because you can't just, I mean, it's just like, Jesus, I, I want to be free. you got to do everything. You know, I mean, the, the Son of Man, the Son of God became man to work with us, to be in the mess with us. But it's a matter of free will. And then you got to have the strength to be able to do stuff that people wouldn't normally do. So, yeah, it's a, it's a struggle, but yes. There is redemption. There is integration. So even the worst, like a St. Augustine, you know, St. Augustine of the 4th century was a porn addict. <laughs> you know, I mean, they didn't really have it so much back then as we do, but he had a kid out of wedlock. He, you know, he was with women all the time. Chastity was this huge thing. He actually had a sexual addiction, uh, and he became one of the greatest doctors of the Catholic Church, one of the greatest saints. So, yeah, integration is possible. Reintegration. What else? I'm interested. This stuff is fascinating to me. How, like, porn, like, removes the human interaction, like, between, it just, like, destroys human interaction. Kind why? Of. You remember why? Because you can just, by clicking the button, get exactly what you want instead of having to um, deal with their demands or <clears throat> their fears or anything like that. You don't even have to. That's a, I, do you guys, John Mayer, do you know him, the musician yeah. guy? He was like, <clears throat> your body is a wonderland, that song, remember that song? I mean, he was just, he's kind of a sicko, but 
he, he had this, this whole thing where he was like spouting his mouth about how he would much rather just look at porn the rest of his life than have a girlfriend because a girlfriend's too much work. And, and in one sense, everybody's like, blah, blah, you know, but in the other sense, I mean, like, that's true. I mean, to, to be in a relationship is a lot of work. So, yeah, I mean, it absolutely destroys relationships. So I, I hope you can see now that uh, this, is, this is what's causing the destruction of the family. Because I don't, I don't even think a lot of people want to come into it with that, but they have it. They have that, that habitual nature uh, or that habitual sin, and then it, it's brought into the marriage, and the, the marriage can't survive. And it, yeah, it just terribly breaks down communication because everything just becomes about pleasure. <coughs> what else? Saint that was the uh, the Egyptian guy. Remember with the prostitutes? Oh, yeah. What was his name? Vitalis of Gaza. There you go. Cool. Vitalis of Gaza, right? And everybody thought that he was like frequenting the brothels when in fact he was trying to save these poor women. And they say, you know, like st studies will say that it's, it's overwhelming. Something like 90% of women in the porn industry were sexually abused. You know, so they, they lost their dignity and they just said the hell with it themselves headlong into the into the industry and almost every single one of them want out you know the the the, the amount of like drug addiction and alcoholism in it is just insane there's just one uh, one lady her name is Shelly Lubin she was uh, she's an ex-porn star and she became uh, she became like kind of like a born-again Christian and just is on fire but you should hear her stories you just on YouTube her and just listen like about the, the the destruction and the abuse and the all this stuff that's in there. It's just it's it's stuff you just don't normally think about, you know? And it's going on nonstop. So good. Well I'm glad you enjoyed it. Again, you know, pass it around. Get that C D all over campus, it'd be great. Uh, maybe we can get people a little bit more self aware of the of the problem. Because I think it's an epidemic. I think it's like I think it's the most available sin ever in the world, and I think it's the, it is affecting the most, especially men. Like it's starting to affect women more and more, but it's it's for men. It's just it's the numbers are unprecedented. You can't imagine, you know, the numbers. So anyway, good. What about uh, the reading? What do you guys think of the whole book? It's awesome. You like it? Good. Anybody not like it? It's usually like people with this book. They either like it or they hate it. It's fine if you didn't like it. It's not going to hurt my feelings. Feel free to talk. Anybody can talk. One time when I encouraged talking. What I liked it, about? but I heard, like, I was talking to my friend that read it, and um, he was saying how, like, he's like, oh, yeah, the first half was really good, but then when he started talking about wounds and stuff, he's like, hey, it wasn't really relatable. I couldn't relate to it. Which is. 
That's a man that's terribly afraid of his own core wounds. What do you think about that though? though? When, especially when he's talking about wounds, because a lot I know guys that like the first part they're just like chest pounding, right? They're like this is amazing, and and then he starts talking about the wounds that fathers cause and all this stuff, and they're just like this is sappy women stuff, right? <laughs> the woman loves it, man. <laughs> it's the boy. What about guys? I want to hear from the guys. That was good. It's pretty relatable in like our day and age. It's mm-hmm. a lack of fathers that stick around, or, you know, the afraid of divorce and so on and so forth. Uh, it's pretty relatable to our generation. Good. I agree. That's why I signed it. I liked how he talked about his kids a lot. Um, that story where his little kid was getting bullied at school and he told him to hit him in the face. Right. Well, that was pretty cool. But. Hit him as hard as you can right in the face. <clears throat> yeah, it's not what you're expecting, I guess. No. I remember talking last week where we were saying that, you know, the, the myths that are told to little boys, like, play it safe. You know, just put up with it. I'm not, I guess that's not the... I don't know if that's like the greatest fatherly advice. <laughs> just go kick the crap out of a kid. But I think it's good to make him stand up and defend himself. I just like it because it's something completely different from what I think I've like, been taught my entire life. Like, like he says in the that, you know, like Catholic faith wants us to be a nice man. The, the corporation wants us to be time, or a hairless man. Or it's said, you know, like spineless. And basically, they're trying to take away our masculinity. And this is like a book that shows us how to get it. Um, being on nature and kind of exploring ourselves and with God, so. And it looks, it, it does what's called a phenomenological view, right? Phenomenology is, is taking phenomena that happen in nature and looking at it and asking why. Right? So why is it that little boys come up with games where, you know, your head explodes? Why is that? You know, why do little girls love, you know, kind of playing and dancing and, you know, playing in, in, like little house parties and dolls and stuff? Like, why is that? And, and, and that, you know, little boys are robbed of that. And little girls are robbed of that. And they're forced to do different things, or, or they're given video games, or they're given, you know, their imaginations can't grow. You know, so what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? You know, and again, I mean, he struggled a lot, too, in order to come to these. I just don't think there's any way to come to an answer about the truth of this life without suffering. I just, I don't know if that's possible. And, and I think the reason why truth is getting pushed to the wayside is because we're so comfortable. There's no, I mean, the suffering, the most suffering that we deal with is like sickness. You know, I'm, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about like people that are really suffering from real suffering, but like us, right here. You know, like we get the flu and you'd swear you're in a World War II prison camp. <laughs> you know, but it's just, I, and it's the reason this has been on my mind and these things have been, I'm, I'm, you know, I think I was telling you about this already, but I'm, I just, I only have the epilogue left, but I'm, I'm reading that book on Broken, uh, was Louis Zamperini, and like, the amount of suffering, you guys, that he went through, it's just, there comes a point when you're like, this is not humanly possible. It's not humanly possible. And it wasn't just like physical suffering, you know, hey, who, who's read the book? Okay, well, I'm probably going to spoil the whole thing for you, but <clears throat> it's okay. <laughs> you know, you got a lot to read. But, uh, you know, he, there, there's parts where he, like, this, this guy just comes up to him, one of the prison guards, and he, like, takes his belt off, and he has this big metal buckle, and he just takes it and just beats him in the temple, like, repeatedly. He just swings it and just wham, right? And if, and if you do anything to try to block 
or like defend yourself, the beating gets worse. And so he just stood and took it. There was another time where he called him out. This, this guy, this, this prison guard, they called him the bird because he could, if you referred to him by his name, which was Watanabe, then he would know you were talking about, you, about him and he'd kick your ass. So they called him the bird so nobody would ever know what he's talking about. But he would, he came to Louis one time and he, he, he just, somebody was stealing food and he said, you know, Louis is one of the guilty culprits. And uh, everybody in the camp is going to punch him in the face as hard as they can, one by one. Let's go. And if you don't hit him as hard as you can, I'm going to hit you harder and more times. And he just stood there. And one by one, his own buddies came up before him and Louis just like, just get it over with. Because if, if, if they don't hit him, they're going to get, you know, beat severely. I mean, this guy was just a sadistic psychopath. And the crazy part is he gets off. He escaped after the war was over. And like Louis, you know, his whole mind is just, and this is, you know, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but from what I hear from the movie, they don't, they don't capture very well what happens after all of this stuff. That's the craziest part of the book, because that's the mental anguish. You know, there's one part where it says, Louis, although he and his POW friends were freed from the Japanese prison camps, their, their minds remained in prison. You know, and I was just telling someone when we were walking in, like this one, like all the guys, they get back together after they got out of the prison camp and like they lost on average, I think 80 pounds, 70 pounds, something like that. These guys, they were just skin and bones and all they get is little, little like ping pong ball sizes of rice. And so one time all of them got together after they were freed and they went out to eat and they were all sitting with their girls and everybody was happy and having a good time. And the server comes out and he puts the, the plate down and there's a side of rice, white rice. And the one guy freaking went berserk. Started throwing over tables, trying to kill the waiter. Because all that happened is he just, everything flashed back to what they had to go through. Like, that is freaking suffering. You know, and like, that, that pushes you to something. That helps you, I mean, like, you have to find yourself in the midst of that. We live in just laziness. Irresponsibility. Comfort. And so all we do is just seek pleasure, 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 pleasure. That's all we got. When these guys, all they had was one another. Right? Imagine if like your only, the only thing you had was like the only thing you could rely on and trust on that it could possibly happen is communion with other people. That's it. Everything else was uncertain. Food, any type of pleasure, water, health. And these guys were all sick, like ridiculously sick. Like I said, like explosive diarrhea because of the dysentery that they had. Yeah, I mean, he was like, he was crapping blood at 90 pounds, getting punched in the face 220 times. You know, I'm like reading this book and I'm like, frick, man, like I, like I said, you know, I get sick and I swear the world's coming to an end. It's amazing. But this guy, like Louis, and you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ruin it for you all the way, because I, I want you to read it, because it's an amazing story. But he comes to a truth, and the only way he comes to that truth is because of what he suffered. And the answer, right? This doesn't ruin anything for you. You probably can figure this out. And which Hollywood did not get right is Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that brought him me, that gave him the ability to live free again. And you guys, I'm convinced that it's not just Louis Zamperini. It's all of us, each individual person in here. The ticket to freedom, the ticket to life, 
The ticket to meaning in life is Jesus Christ. It's not by chance that Louis Zamperini suffered worse than maybe any person on the face of the planet in World War II. I don't know. But it was pretty terrible from what he recounts. It isn't by chance that somehow the only person that could fix him was Jesus Christ. His wife couldn't. His kid couldn't. His family couldn't. The only one. And, it, and the crazy part is that it, like, disappears. It's not like, it's like he has to work through it. That God healed him. And he can do that for us. But I'm telling you, you can sit back and be like, I've been asking God for years. You know what? Louis Zamperini was in prison on a raft for 47 days or something like four years. All that crap happened over I mean, two and a half. I can't remember. Two and a half years. And he was way worse than any of you will ever be. And somehow, through the midst of all of that, he comes to the knowledge of truth about, about life, and he realized the truth about life is Jesus Christ. That's it. It's not, a, it's not a hard answer. You know? Like God's final question on his exam is going to be, what is the meaning to life? And all you have to say is, your son. That's the answer. You can either choose to believe that or not. All right. Any other thoughts? Give me some more thoughts about the book, yeah. Or whatever. Um, I kind of was like questioning, like when he started talking about women, and I don't know if you're going to talk about this, but you talk about women, how like one of their main like things is to seduce men. But I'm wondering about that. Not in a good way. Oh, you mean when he's talking about like using yeah. using yeah. the feminine sort of? Yeah. What does he mean by that? I think he means that we, that woman is supposed to not seduce. <laughs> I think that's kind of a hard that's kind of a hard way to say it. But I think she's supposed to use her femininity to slowly like guide him, and sometimes she has to use the actual physical aspect of her femininity to help him. And women can be really good at this or really terrible at it. If it turns into seduction, it turns into a nightmare. Because a woman will seduce the man to get what she wants. But if a, if a woman can use her femininity, because men, like, they want sex. Right? And I think, you know, a lot of women do too. But women have a greater ability to control themselves than men. And so what a, what a woman needs to do is, is teach through that, not use but teach and help, you know? And it's almost like, and, and again, it starts sounding kind of crude, but I think, I think there's, there's truth in it. You know, that there's, it, it's almost like there's a certain type of, of, I don't even want to use this word, but like reward. You know, the guy does something really wonderful, really beautiful, and then he's like, at night, like he, he wants intimacy. You should get, you should do that, even if you don't feel like it. Because, if, because what it does is it's a positive reinforcement for the guy. Now, I hate to make it sound like men are like dogs, you know, but they do. They need some positive reinforcement for the stuff that they're doing right. They do something right, and all you do is bitch and complain, and, and, and you're turned off by him, you know, at night. He's going to be like, Frick, what do you want from me? By the way, that's really hard for men. I've, I've noticed that. Like in marriage prep. You know, like the woman, she doesn't sometimes even know what she wants. 
she'll say this, and then I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, do that. And then she's like, but no, but I want that. And he's like, well, you know, like, what do you want? Just tell me what you want. <laughs> right? Some guys are just so lost and so confused. But to be able to use that as, as, a, as a way to not coerce, not, not, not to train, because that sounds terrible too, but like to really assist and help. Right? And the, and, the, and the woman can get really good at this in a very positive way. She can also get really bad at it. You know, and like a really bad at it is, is the, the woman that's just seductive. You know, a married woman that's always flirting with other guys and all this stuff and can get whatever she wants through sexuality. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is using your sexuality as an aid. Right? It's like kind of like a bonus. To, to help in, in the correct ways, not to not to evoke lust, but to, to, to bring love, and to and to use that as a positive reinforcement at times. That's not all the time. I'm just saying there are times where you can you can really do that. It can be if you have yeah, a terrible like, marriage. Where do you like draw that line? Where I don't know. I feel like it is, like when you said, it's like a dog. Like, I feel like that's the what? only way that would be. I don't know, like, by what you're explaining. In the, well, in the beginning, again, too, is like, and it's not just sexuality. It's being able to use your femininity, your beauty, your all these things to help the man to do the right thing. You know, and, and sexuality is obviously part of that, but like, to, to really be an encouragement to him, um, But shouldn't his encouragement like be to like just for like his love for her? Yeah, eventually. Just... <laughs> eventually, but I think women go into the into relationships with far too, uh, too far too high of an expectation for for what men are capable of right away. I mean, it takes time to grow in love. Like you got to be tried and you got to be put through the crucible before that love becomes like solidified and and real. And I mean, it's, there's a reason why they call the beginning love eros, erotic. And then it moves to philios, to agape, unconditional. But it doesn't start there, you know? And yes, yeah, should a man be doing that? Yeah, he should. But sometimes he needs some encouragement. Because he's had a really long day at work where everybody's been yelling at him. The last thing he needs is when he comes home for you to be struggling too. You know? And that can work vice versa, not just putting this all in. But yes, ultimately, he should be doing it out of pure love. But that is just not reality. We hope that it will get to that. But it's not that right away. And to, and to, and, and to have that presupposition, I think, is a false reality in your mind. And will cause more problems in your marriage than good. I'm not saying you say, oh, you can be a, a worthless pile. I'm saying, I want you to be here, but I understand when you make mistakes. But let's keep shooting for this. What do you think? What do you guys? I mean, I, I don't have to answer all the time. We will get in more into this when we talk about women. Speak. You're always quiet. Speak. Start docking people.
to sexuality with scandalous you know scandal can be all types of things and maybe that she isn't maybe that she's she's breaking out of the mold of like traditional old-school thoughts of women you know like quiet reserved and, and submitting to everything without ever voicing her opinion you know she has to be scandalous when it comes to that and bold and valiant but she has to also know who she is because otherwise and that, they, again, that might be another thin line, as you were saying, Ms. Olson. You know, like, if you're not, again, I think he's talking about formed Christian women, formed Christian men, that they know who they are. And there's times when they have to be, in the eyes of the world, pretty scandalous in order to help people, in order to be the woman they're called to be. Right? But I don't, I don't think we should immediately go to sexuality in that sense, because I don't think that's what he's talking about. And he's talking more about the truth of who she's called to be. And sometimes you got to break out of, and maybe break out, break out of the mold too. I mean, you can think of scandalous in this way: she's in, she's in a room with a ton of feminists, right? And and they're talking about how they need to take over the world and and get men out of the workplace. And she's like, I I think we should really start focusing on what it means to be a mother. For the feminists, that's scandalous. But for her, that's valiant. That she comes forward to be able to, she, she knows who she is so well that she's able to speak that kind of truth. You know, that's intense. So I think we got to, you know, put it in the proper context. Um, I think that might help a little bit. Yeah, i got to think more about the, the other question. It's okay. Can't answer everything. I'm not a genius. I'm kind of an idiot. Um, good. All right, well, back to our notes. Anything else? Anybody else have anything? Good, good. I like talking about the book, too. So. Good. Okay. Um, I want to look tonight, I want to look at two people specifically. I want to look at Judas, uh, son of Simon the Iscariot. And I want to look at St. Peter uh, as two model examples of what man shouldn't be and what man should be. And then next week, uh, I plan on getting in. I don't know how long tonight's going to take. Um, and I have a lot to do because I have to leave tomorrow for Holy Week to help my brother. So if we get out a little early, I'm sure you guys are going to be heartbroken. Uh, but you'll, you'll be able to put up with it. It depends. So sometimes I just kind of get sidetracked. So we'll see. Um, but yeah, then I'd like to talk about St. Joseph. You know, St. Joseph is not... Uh, if we get into him a little bit tonight, so be it. If not, uh, we'll just do Peter and, and Judas, uh, and then a little thing about parenting. But I think the... Do you guys want a third one? Yeah. No. Oh. <laughs> I just made my night. No more erasing. Oh. Watch out. Maybe there will be erasing. <laughs> Um, so a little bit of Judas, a little bit of Peter. And then you're going to St. Joseph. You know, St. Joseph, is the, they call him Joseph the Silent. Uh, that's the book that you're going to be uh, uh, reading. 
The other thing too, I was gonna, I was just gonna touch base with you guys. Y'all got the book I Believe in Love. Okay, that's that's part of the reading. We're gonna cut down the reading of that book. I do. Uh, I really encourage you to read that whole book. It's really amazing. And read it kind of as just sort of a meditative. You don't have to plow through this thing. It's just something where you can read until you glean something from it and then stop, put it down, come back to it in a couple days, kind of meditate on these things. But I want to give you a, an article by Sarah Swathard. Um, she's an incredible speaker, but also a good writer. I'll give it to you next week. Um, but anyway, it's, it's called The Emotional Roller Coaster. And uh, it's about women written by a woman, and I thought it was titled very well. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's a pretty long article, but I want you to, to read through it. So I'll give you that next week, and that's a, kind of your springboard, along with I Believe in Love, uh, to move into um, uh, talking about women. So, Judas. Good. What do we know about Judas Iscariot? He betrayed Jesus. That's good. We got that one. <laughs> Funny thing, I actually asked kids in a CCD class one time who Judas Iscariot was, and they didn't, they, they didn't know. How do you not know that? What else do we know about Judas? He likes money. Huh? He likes money. He likes money. How do we know that? He was the, wasn't he the treasurer? He was the treasurer, but that doesn't mean he like, I mean, no, but. a lot of people are treasurers and they hate their jobs. <laughs> he steals from it. He steals from it. John tells us that he's a thief. He would steal from the, from the, why, why else could you expect he likes money? He sold Jesus for? Money. How much? 30. 30 pieces of silver. Why else could you think that he likes money? Or that he's kind of a money guy? The oil. Good, yeah. We're gonna we'll get into that. The perfume, right? Mary comes in, breaks the perfume, puts it on Jesus, anointing his body, and Judas is like, "Why this waste? Why this waste?" Right? He's just throwing money away. So yeah, Judas. Judas doesn't. He, he's he's kind of a, a money guy. We do know this too. Uh, he was one of the twelve apostles. He's always labeled, he's always listed last. And one thing that you should write, that you should write this down. Jesus chose Judas to be an apostle. God bless you. Jesus chose Judas to be an apostle. <clears throat> he became a traitor. Jesus chose him to be an apostle, but he became a traitor. <clears throat> Again, imagine this. I think we talked a little bit about this. You know, imagine the power of Judas Iscariot in evangelizing the world. Think about what kind of power that guy would have had. You know, like he, you know, like him and Peter go out on mission. Could you imagine that? Peter's like, I denied him. Judas is like. I'm the one that put him to death, pretty much. You know, like, it's totally my fault. And Peter's like, he forgave me. And Judas is like, he forgave me too. I mean, I think, and maybe this is, this is kind of a little, 
uh, of my own interpretation. I think that Jesus chose Judas to be the greatest apostle. Do you understand why I would think that? Because he commits the greatest act of sin. The, the betrayal of the Son of God. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than that. In fact, I don't think it does get worse than that. I think the betrayal of God himself is the worst possible sin that, that could exist. And then on top of that, if that wasn't the worst sin, he then commits the, the, the worst sin, which is he doesn't believe he can be forgiven. And he hangs himself. So Judas was meant to be one of the greatest apostles, okay? His last name, Iscariot, some people, some scripture scholars, think it comes from the Greek word sakarios, which means dagger. Right? So his last name means dagger. Now, why, you know, immediately if, if you thought, wow, that, that kind of matches, why do you think that kind of matches? Yeah, I mean, he stabs Jesus in the back. He's, he's, a, he's a scrapper. He's a pile of crap. You know, I mean, he's, he's, he's cheap. You know, a person with a dagger is a cheap shot, right? They're just concealing it so they know when to use it. But it probably comes from the fact that his family were revolutionaries. So he got the last name, Sicarius, or that his dad was like, you know, Simon the Dagger, because he was always trying to kill revolutionaries. Or, I mean, to the, the Romans. They were revolutionaries trying to kill the Romans. So he comes probably from a family background of, like, mercenaries, right? But in any case, the Lord chooses him. And he was, I think he was more interested in getting the Romans out of Jerusalem than he was of getting Christ into the hearts of the people. But the Lord chooses him anyway. A second century testimony says that he was the nephew of Caiaphas. Who was Caiaphas? Huh? Pharisee? Uh, yeah, he was a Pharisee. He was the high priest. Right? He was the one that put Jesus to death. So his nephew may have been Judas. So what was the reason for his failure? I want to ask you guys, why do you think he defected? Are you talking about like initially turning Jesus in or later on when he thinks he can't be forgiven? No, I'm talking why did he turn the Lord over? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. What do you mean he had to? Well, without him turning Jesus over, he never would have died. Possibly. We don't know that for sure. But we do know that it, like, it resulted in that, so... Right. But I would like, I, I love, you know, the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if you know that, but Aslan, the great lion, he symbolizes Jesus in there. And in the books, there's one point where he says, well, what would have happened if this didn't? And Aslan says, I can't tell you what would have happened, only what did. So the point being is, like, I'm sure there's other ways that the Lord would have been betrayed. But Judas, he did have free choice. He I, could have not betrayed him. I can agree, but, you know, I think God, like, knows a lot more than I do. That's good. He chose a reason for Judas to, you know, betray him. And maybe, maybe, we don't know this. Again, right, you know, we're not, we don't know God's mind. But maybe he did. Maybe Judas was in some way chosen uh, for the betrayal, but that he would, in fact, be forgiven and then be raised as the greatest apostle, right? So the ultimate outcome was good. The scriptures had to be fulfilled in some way. But the important thing that you, you get through your brains is that God did not choose Judas 
to be the betrayer. He didn't choose Judas to be the betrayer. He chose him to be an apostle. That's very, very important. Because betrayal is, is a sin of all the apostles. They all left him. They all betrayed him. But what Judas' deepest sin is, is he does not trust the mercy of Jesus. That's what makes him so wicked. All the other apostles trusted him. <clears throat> Even Peter. You know, it took a while. Peter had to deal with it. Peter kind of retreats into the silence. But he deals with it. The Lord forgives it. The Lord forgives all of them. Right? I think I went through that. When you know when he shows, when he when he shows up at the resurrection, he shows them their his wounds. Right? So first thing he does, he says, peace, he shows them their wounds, and he says, peace be with you. So the idea being like, look what you did, but I forgive you. It's okay. Be at peace. It's all over. <clears throat> but Judas couldn't receive that. Okay? So why did he, and, and yes, in one sense you are, in, in, in a sense, correct, right? There was, there was a need for the betrayal according to what Scripture prophesied. But he was not chosen to be the betrayer because all of them betrayed. I was just, I was this came to me today in Mass. If you're in Mass, you've probably already heard this, but I was reading in the Gospel of John, and I had my homily all, you know, sort of prepared. I kind of go in there half prepared, half not, just hoping the Holy Spirit kind of nudges me a bit. But as I was, I was in there, I was reading in the Gospel, and all of a sudden it says, Jesus is at supper, and he stops and he says, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me. And all of a sudden, all the apostles are like, Frick, who is it? It's not me. Is it you? No, it's not me. I mean, could you imagine at the table, everybody's like, who's the betrayer? And then, and then Peter says to John, motions to him like, hey, ask Jesus who the betrayer is. <clears throat> so John leans back because he's sitting right next to Jesus. And he says, who's the betrayer? And Jesus says to John, he doesn't say to all of them. He says to John, to the one who I dip this piece of bread in the dish and give it to, he is the one that will betray me. He dips it in the dish and he gives it to Judas. And Judas looks him square in the face and takes it. You know, I mean, like the Lord was doing everything he could to, to save Judas. He's sharing his own food with him. Judas, just say, you're going to do it. It's okay, buddy. You got him right down to the very line. And that's why when Judas walks out, Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified. Up to this point, there was no telling what Judas was going to do. But because he has chosen freely to go and do this, now I'm going to be glorified. You read it straight out of John's Gospel. But what struck me about that reading is, John doesn't tell anybody. Jesus doesn't tell anybody. Judas takes the piece of bread. You know, that was normal to <laughs> toast somebody. You give them a little piece of bread. You know, you're sharing bread. So Peter's like, what's going on? He doesn't get his answer. And all of a sudden, after Judas leaves, nobody has the answer. Everybody's still freaking out. And then Jesus says, you know, I'm glorified now, all this stuff. And he's like, where I'm going, you cannot come. And Peter's like, why, why can't we come? I want to come. And he's like, you can't come now. You will come later. And he's talking about death, obviously. And Peter's like, I can't come now? Lord, I would die for you. And Peter, Jesus turns to Peter and says, before the cock crows, Three times you will have denied me. Now, for 
everybody in the room, who is the betrayer? Peter. Peter is. Can you imagine, like, the craziness of that moment? Everybody's like, I mean, yeah, there's one part where you're like, yes. <laughs> like, it's not me. You know? But the other part is like, oh my goodness. The Rock. Who would have thought? The plot thickens. Like, this is the greatest story ever told because the one who is the leader of the church is going to betray him. And Peter must have been like, what? What? And the whole time all this is going on, guess who nobody even thinks of? Judas. Judas walks out the door. But where did this, that was a little digression, where did this all start? <clears throat> where did his betrayal, his defection, where did it begin? Seek for pleasure. What do you mean by that? <clears throat> like, he said he likes money. Okay. So obviously his short-term fix for his pleasure is money. So you're going to say money. Not, so his desire, his, his greed, his lust for power for money. Not entirely, but maybe that's part of it. Okay. And most people, if you ask modern scripture scholars, which aren't really worth a damn, you have to go back and like read stuff prior to them because they suck. But modern scripture scholarship says that Judas betrayed because of money, because of his greed. But, and the, and the reason they say that is because of that story that we were talking about in Luke's gospel, well, it's in quite a few gospels, where the, the, the prostitute comes in. Now this is the one we read, yeah, the one we read today is the anointing of Bethany. Okay, that's beautiful. That's Mary anointing Jesus, symbolic of his com upcoming death. Yeah, it's like three or four days ago where we read the one from Luke's gospel. That's when Mary Magdalene, okay? This isn't Mary from Bethany. This is Mary Magdalene, who is the great sinner, the prostitute, right? Who they say, it's, it's awesome. Sometimes the scripture says, Mary of Magdala, from whom seven devils were cast out. I mean, she must have been one wicked-ass woman. Seven devils? You know, that should give any woman who's in that kind of plight some hope. But anyway, she comes in, and she, like, comes across it. And, and remember, back in the ancient world, it was really easy to come into these, these, these parties, you know? Doors were open. It was kind of open to the air. She comes in. She's weeping, and she just lays at Jesus' feet, just crying onto his feet. And then she begins to wash his feet with her hair and the tears that are coming from her eyes. And then when she's done, then she takes the alabaster jar, breaks it, alabaster is already very expensive. Judas says, you know, this was worth 300 days wages. This is some freaking expensive perfume, right? And she anoints the body of Jesus. The, the, my favorite part of the whole story is when Simon the Pharisee, when he says, he's like, if Jesus, if this Jesus guy was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. It says that Jesus knew Simon was thinking this. So in his own brain, Simon's like, well, if this is a prophet, he would know. You know, my question is, how does Simon know what kind of woman she is? You know? <laughs> He's just thinking, he ain't telling everybody, hey, you know, you know. It's in his own head. Maybe he frequented her brothel once or twice in the middle of the night. He knows who she is. And then Jesus leans over and says, you know, Simon, let me ask you a question. If one person owes a ton of money and another person owes a little bit of money and the master who they owe forgives both of them, who is going to love the master more? And Simon says, the one, I guess, who owed more. 
And he says, you have spoken rightly. And just so this woman who has sinned much can love much. Now go in peace, your sins are forgiven. And then everybody explodes. Right? It's bad enough that a prostitute is crying and anointing this man's feet. But now he just said, her sins are forgiven, go in peace. No way but God can say stuff like that. But what's, what, what's striking about this story is 300 days wages. That's roughly around $20,000. That's how much that perfume cost. $20,000. Why? What's the purpose of her anointing his feet? Well, again, I mean, hopefully I'm going to get to that in a second. So $20,000. Why is that really, really important? Because that significant amount of money probably symbolizes what? All the money she made from being a prostitute. So she, took, she wanted to be rid of that life so badly that she took all that money, sold it for this perfume to give to God. And she anoints, and as Judas looks on, he says, why this waste? And I remember Archbishop Sheen has this wonderful quote. He says, Judas knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. Why this waste? And Jesus turns to him, this is not a waste. In fact, in another gospel, it says that what she has done will be recorded wherever the gospel is preached. And crazy enough, I'm, it's not crazy enough, he's God, so he can do that. That's actually what happened. And so Judas, everybody thinks it's about money, because Judas is so concerned about the value of the perfume, right? But that is not the answer. So it's a good answer. What, where does Judas's initial break start? That's, yeah, but that's right. <laughs> that's right, but, but that's not an exact spot. Where exactly in the scriptures does it, give, does it give away that Judas is already falling away? That's why you got to read your Bibles. Hmm? You don't know. Anybody? In John chapter 6, okay, you probably want to know this. In John chapter 6, <clears throat> first of all, you should all really go home tonight and uh, before you go to bed, read John chapter 6. Okay, just kind of make it your night prayer tonight. Then if you don't pray, start. Be a great way to start. John chapter 6. You need a Bible? Download an application off of iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> right? Or you can go to the chapel. That's a crazy idea. Actually, go to the chapel. Get a Bible at the back and then read John chapter 6. Anyway, what happens in John chapter 6? Feeding of 5,000. Huh? Feeding of 5,000. Keep going. Uh, no, there's what? There's a, there's a hell of a lot more that happens in John chapter 6. That's like the beginning. What happens after? Oh. Or is it before? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. No big deal. <laughs> the bread from heaven and words of eternal life. So this it's a, it's it's the whole what, what what we call the Eucharistic discourse. Okay? John chapter six, 
is the Eucharistic discourse. It is when John explains to us, you know, all the other Gospels have accounts of the Last Supper and the institution of the, of the Eucharist. It says, while they were at table, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. But the crazy part is in John's Gospel, that doesn't exist. What happens at the Last Supper in John's Gospel? It's the Last Supper. <laughs> They're eating. And at some point, Jesus does something. He stops. Hmm? Yeah, the washing of the feet. So he gets up and it says, knowing that all power in heaven and on earth was given to him. Right? So he knows who he is. He says he knew he was from the Father. He was going back to the Father. He gets up takes off his outer garment, puts on an apron, and begins to wash feet. And then, three chapters, Jesus prays. <laughs> he just prays and kind of does his own thing. And there's a lot of, I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me, and if you're one with the Father, you're one with me, and the Father is in us, and we are all in the Father, and I'm with the Father, and he's the Father, and I'm the Son. And it just, it like, he's going, I'm telling you, it's the worst week of preaching for a priest. It's like hell week. You know, they, they go through, I shouldn't say that about the gospel. <laughs> but it's like this, it, it's this week in which you get John like 15, 16, and 17, and they're just these, they're beautiful. Theologically, you could write books about them, but trying to preach on them is really hard. You get up and you like, you preach on the first one, and then you get up the next day and you're like, I swear we just read this like yesterday. Because they, you know, there's so much overlap, but it's just Jesus is trying to hammer into his apostles that he is one with the Father. And like my favorite part of that whole thing is they're sitting, this is great. This is why you gotta read the Bible, because it's funny too. <clears throat> so they're sitting there, and he's like, if you've seen the Father, you see, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the Father and I are one. And, and then it says, Philip turns and says to Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. You know, I'm like, you gotta think like Jesus is sitting there like. <laughs> Really? You know how Philip's like playing with his bread or something? You know, hey, just show us the Father and that would be good enough. You know, and, Jesus, and then Jesus even says, he's like, Philip, have you been with me so long and you still don't know who I am? I just told you. I am the Father and the Father is in me. You know, these poor guys are like, what the hell does that mean? You know? I, I love sitting with the apostles and trying to figure out what Jesus is saying, you know? You know, like when they're coming down the hill of transfiguration, he's like, he's like, don't tell anybody about this until I've after, after I've risen from the dead. You know, and they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know? And then it says after that, they discussed amongst themselves what rising from the dead meant. You know, so Jesus is out in front. You got like the Lord has just got to be like, this is great. You know, and they're like, what the hell is he talking about? I don't know. Just say yes. Just, just say yes. You know, so anyway, where was I? I don't even know the hell I was going. Oh, yeah. So John, John at the Last Supper has no Last Supper discourse. He just has this long prayer and the washing of the feet. But his, his Eucharistic discourse, when he describes the Eucharist, he gives an entire chapter to it in John chapter 6. Right? 
Some of this I might even explain a little bit before with, you know, the, the, the changing in the wording. So Jesus says, this is my body, right? And he's like, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you have no life within you. And everybody's like, wait, 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 what are you talking about? That's crazy. And Jesus, they're like, clarify it for us. And he's like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any life within you. <laughs> he doesn't change anything in the English, but in the Greek he does. He changes a word. Right? And it goes from eating, like normal human beings do, to tearing flesh off the bone, like animals do. So he's intensifying his language, trying to tell people, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. <clears throat> and again, if, you, if you're the apostles, you know, sometimes when Jesus is like teaching, you're just like, like, go Jesus. You know, get at the Pharisees. <laughs> you know? But other times you gotta be like, oh man, <laughs> where's he going with this? You know, like you're gonna. Because, I mean, the guy's talking about cannibalism. And and he's he's getting ready to offer himself to be eaten. I mean, that's freaking weird. You know, and he turns, and then, and then everybody starts walking away. They all start leaving. Think how many people have left the Catholic Church. They just walk away from it. And you can sit back and you can say, whatever, you know, the Catholic Church is too, too this, too that. But here's the deal. The Catholic Church is the only faith that says, that teaches, the bread and the wine are his body and his blood, and we are following what he commanded us in John chapter 6 by eating his flesh and drinking his blood that he gave to us at the Last Supper. We're just as freaking crazy. You know the early Christians, they used to die by the thousands, millions, not millions, probably like tens, hundreds of thousands. And you know what their, one of their biggest crimes was? They were saying that the Christians were having a love feast because that's what they called it. Now, if you hear on campus about a love feast, hey, everybody, Saturday Night Love Fest, you know? What are you thinking is going on there? I mean, some pretty crazy stuff. Well, first they think, okay, crazy stuff, it's the love feast, the love fest, whatever, you know? I had a buddy of mine, he had, <laughs> he, had he taught two things. He did love fest and sin stock, right? <laughs> so instead of Woodstock, sin stock, yeah, whatever. So... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so they hear this love feast, and then all of a sudden they start like kind of like looking into it, and they hear that they they eat a person. So, so apparently it's a big orgy in which they eat a human being at the end of it. I mean, think about how weird these people were. This is why it was so easy when Nero burned the city. It was so easy for him to blame the Christians because nobody knew what the hell the Christians were doing. Get them out. Yeah, they're flipping weird. And so all these people walking away, and Jesus doesn't say, come on back, and say, hey, time out. No kidding. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> he just lets them walk. And then he turns to his, his apostles and says, what are you guys going to do? Are you going to leave too? You know? And it's just that moment. You're just like, Fred, what's going to happen? Peter, and I think I said this before, but Peter's answer very simply is, Lord, I don't know what the hell you're talking about again. <laughs> this is a common occurrence. <laughs> but I know you're God, and I believe that because I said it once, and you said I was right. And so 
I'm just going to keep rolling with that. I mean, that's essentially Peter's, that's, that's the, you know, when we think of the, the, the great St. Peter, we think of this, like, incredible faith. I'll never have faith like that. I mean, like, Peter, he barely could see a, a foot in front of his own step. Well, however that saying goes. <laughs> he couldn't even see it. You know, like, it was one step at a time. He didn't know where he was going, what he was doing, or what he was saying. And it's at that moment, it's right then, that Jesus says to him, he said, Did I not choose 12 of you to be my apostles? But one of you is a traitor. It's right when he institutes the Eucharist. That's when Judas's defection is already beginning. Because John even says he was talking about Judas, the son of Simon the Iscariot. Judas has no idea who Jesus is. And we see this because time and time again, whenever Judas addresses Jesus, how does he talk about him? Huh? Rabbi. rabbi. Teacher. And probably the most scandalous one is at the Last Supper when he says, somebody's about to betray me. One says, who is it? Right? <clears throat> That's John. Ten say, is it I, Lord? And one says, surely it is not I, Master. So all of them are acknowledging him as God. Curios, Lord, right? But Judas, for Judas, Jesus is a teacher. He's another religious leader that might save them from the Romans. He has no idea who Jesus is. <clears throat> and it's the same with us. We will deny him if we don't know him. We will sell him if we don't know him. And people sell him for all types of stuff. They sell him for friends. They sell him for a boyfriend or a girlfriend. They sell him for a job. They sell him for their reputation. They sell him for money. They sell him for fame. And every time they get it, they're never quite happy with what they got. And that's what happens with Judas, right? What does he do with the 30 pieces of silver? <clears throat> huh? Does he, try to give them back? he tries to go and give them back. He comes in, he's like, I have betrayed innocent blood. I don't want this money. And he throws it, right? He throws it at the, the, the high priest. And the high priest is like, you can do whatever. It's not our money anymore. It's all on you, Judas. You know? If you haven't seen, again, if you haven't seen The Passion, Mel Gibson's a passion. If you haven't seen that, I just want to encourage you, you know, if you're, if you're kind of coming into your, you know, your faith a little bit, you don't have to get it and say, hey, guys, let's eat popcorn and have a Friday night movie with the passion because it's not, it's not as effective. But you need to do it with the passion because you need to go get it. You need to download it on iTunes. You need to do however you want to get it. You need to watch it by yourself. Watch it by yourself and say before you watch it, Lord, Help this to affect my relationship with you. And then watch that movie. And watch what happens to Judas. And watch Jesus. And watch Peter. And watch the Blessed Mother. All these characters in the history of salvation and how they affect our entire lives. I was listening to this, uh, this podcast. And the guy was in front of this priest and he said, Nothing. It was really beautiful. It was, a, it was a meditation on Palm Sunday. Because, you know, on Palm Sunday we read the Passion. 
So it's like the longest gospel reading of the year, and that's usually what people focus on. Like, oh, frick, it's Palm Sunday, long gospel. You know? Anyway, so, but at the end of that, his commentary on it was, he said, nothing. No birth, no death, no election, no war, no kingdom, no empire has affected the world more than what we just heard. You guys, I think what's happening because Christendom, not Christianity, Christendom is dead. Christendom is when Christ actually rules in society. When kingdoms, you know, made rules according to Christianity and it, it flourished in the political atmosphere and all over the place. But Christendom is dead. Christianity is not. But when it did rule, it affected everything. It changed the world. And it's out of these passion narratives. And we can learn so much from them if we allow them to affect us. Most of the time, people are just pissed in mass. When's the last time any of you in here sat down in silence for 10 or 15 minutes and read one of the passion accounts in the gospel? And let it affect you deeply. And thought about the different characters. And if you can't do that, if your mind can't do that, then watch this movie and let the movie do it for you to start, like, kind of be a catalyst to get you thinking about the incredible week we are right now in and how it has changed the world. Changed the world, okay? So Judas's break starts in John chapter 6. When does it, when does it kind of come to its conclusion? Huh? No, 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 his break with Jesus. This isn't supposed to be a hard question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when it, the Last Supper. I mean, it says he goes out from the Last Supper. And, and again, you know, remember that Judas was in a, a place of honor. You know, to the left and to the right were places of honor. That's why John and James, the brothers, they asked Jesus at one point. Well, actually, they have their they're pansies. They have their mom ask. Oh, Matt, come on. Like, come on, you guys. They're like, they're like, hey, mom. Can you ask Jesus if we can sit at his left and his right? And she does it. You know? And, and, and the Lord is like, those are not places for me. You know, that's been ordained by the Father. But the left and the right were places of honor. We know that John was sitting to the right. How do we know that? Because he asked Jesus. And the place of honor was to the right and to the left. Because he was the beloved. And we said, says in the scripture, the beloved disciple is sitting next to Jesus. We can assume that he was to his right. We can assume then as well that Peter is probably next to him. Because Peter asked John. Asked the Lord. <laughs> right? And then you have Jesus, and then to his left is Judas. How do we know Judas is to his left? Because he hands him something. He has to be to his right or to his left. Right? And the highest place of honor in the ancient Middle Eastern culture was to the left. Why does Jesus put him there? Trying to get him to convert. The Lord is trying everything in his power to get Judas not to do it. Or at least if he does do it, to know that Jesus loves him. 
And there's something else that we should take away from this story, is once he gives him the Eucharist, right? Because it is the Eucharist at this point. He gives it to Judas. Judas takes it and eats it. And it says, what is the line right after that? You guys suck at the scripture. You gotta know scripture. You don't know scripture. You don't know crap about your faith. We gotta know it. We gotta read it. We gotta eat it. Figuratively. Right after he gives Judas the peace, the morsel. Do it quickly. No, close. The gospel says something happened. <clears throat> the devil entered him. And Satan entered him. He was possessed, you guys. I mean, we, again, we don't, I don't know how much we think about that. You know, nobody, and here's, a, here's the other crazy part. Nobody knows he's possessed. Right? Because it says when, when he got up to leave, what does it say the apostles thought was happening? He was going to prepare the feast, or he was going to go give some of the money to the poor. So he looked like a charity worker, a social worker, or a sacristan at Mass. He looked like he was just going out to do his job. And yet the devil was in him. There's something in the Catholic faith that we say about the Eucharist. <clears throat> we believe that if you are not in communion with Christ, with the Catholic Church, or in the state of grace, you should not receive the Eucharist. And everybody thinks that this is us being like or exclusive, and we need to be more inclusive and let everybody come up and everybody can receive, and what's the big deal? We base it off of this scripture passage. If you're not in the state of grace, you should not be receiving the Eucharist. Because it works almost opposite to you. I mean, imagine, can you imagine the pain in the Lord's heart when Judas, he, he toasts him. And he gives him the greatest gift that he gave to humanity. His own body and blood, his, it's the greatest gift. And Judas looks him square in the face, takes it, eats it, and leaves. You think of the modern day Catholic and how many people are coming up in mass receiving the Blessed Sacrament in the same way that Judas did. With hearts unconverted, hearts that don't know him, hearts that are even opposed to him, and they're more afraid of what people will think if they stay in the pure, if they do this and just receive a blessing, than they are about looking the Son of God in the face and lying directly to him. <coughs> It's cowardice again. It always creeps in. Right? And then finally, they go out to the garden. <clears throat> Judas betrays him with a kiss. Why do you, you know, this is a question I had to ask. I actually had to look this up, and they're still not 100% sure, but why, why the betrayal? Why the, why the sign? Because even Judas says, I'll give you a sign. The one to whom I shall kiss, right? That is the one. Arrest him. Why do you think he needed a sign? What was Judas expecting? No ideas. They're going out to get him. Everybody thinks he's a criminal. They're coming out to surprise him at his like secret spot with his boys. What is Judas sus suspecting is going to happen? A fight. In fact, some people say that he wants a fight. He wants to push Jesus to move against the Romans. That this will be the beginning. He will start a rebellion. 
And so he thinks that either Jesus is going to be hiding behind his men as their commander, or he's going to flee, and when we have to pull him out of the darkness, I'll tell you who it is. So if anything happens, look for me, the one that I'm grabbing, that's the guy. And the crazy part is, this just shows you the caliber of the man that Jesus Christ was. <clears throat> the, 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 the whole cohort comes out, right? And Jesus walks out to him. I mean, again, like if you knew some, like a group of 20 guys was coming to kick your ass, would you walk out to him? And not even just beat you up. They were going to kill you. And the Lord just simply walked. I mean, Judas must have been shocked. And then not only is he shocked about that Jesus is actually coming out to him, he is now even more shocked because the Lord tells Peter to stop fighting. <clears throat> We're not going to fight. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And when the, all the apostles realize the Lord is not going to fight, what do they do? They run because they know if they stay, their fate is the same as his. When they realize that Jesus is not about fighting, well, he is about fighting. He's just about fighting on a different level. They leave. <clears throat> and that's why all of the apostles are guilty of betrayal, you guys. Every single one of them betrayed Jesus. <clears throat> and that's important to know. You know, what about us? <clears throat> you know, Judas didn't know about the resurrection. We do. We still betray him. I think we have this tendency to be like, oh, Judas, you're a piece of garbage. You suck. You're a sucky human. You saw him. You saw all the miracles. You saw everything. And you still betrayed him. Well, what about us? We sit in the Last Supper every Sunday, God willing. Do we look him in the face and say, hail, Rabbi? Surely it isn't me, Master. I haven't been to confession in ten years, but it's not me. I wouldn't be the one betraying you, denying you. I think we need to bring this up to speed to realize that, like, what the Lord is trying to teach us through Judas. And then finally, you know, he throws his money back because every time you betray the Lord, something you get in return never leaves you happy. You always want more. You realize what you did. But the question then comes to this. Will you turn back for mercy or will you not? Because there is no difference between St. Peter and Judas Iscariot, except Peter believed in forgiveness. That's it. There is no difference between those two men in what they did. You know? In fact, Peter may, may be even worse. <laughs> Peter's the leader of the church. There is no difference between those two except one believed in forgiveness and the other one didn't. Okay? So the great lesson is we can always sell Christ but we can never buy him. We can never buy him. And the great tragedy of life is that we don't become a saint. Actually, it's the greatest tragedy of life. So, 8 o'clock. I want to take a five-minute break. We'll come back. <clears throat> I want to go over the beginning of masculine spirituality. So we see in the first part, there's so many ways to sell the Lord out. And so many men are doing it. But the good news is, fellas, and this is for women too, there is always mercy. 
And in fact, mercy is the only thing that answers every single question in the human heart. Again, really quick, just one last thing about Louis Zamperini. <laughs> Keep going back, man. It's just this is an amazing story. And uh, but there was this point where, of all people, he went and saw Billy Graham. Okay, Billy Graham came to California. And he went to go see him. At this point, he was looking at porn. He was drunk every night, like like blackout drunk. He was smoking his brains out. He was divorced. He had physically assaulted his wife and his child by accident because he was so drunk. He is in a nightmare right now. And all he can think about is getting back to Japan to kill the guy that tortured him in prison, the bird. That's all that goes through his mind every night. He just sees him. Every night he dreams of choking him and just squeezing until the life breath goes out of him. Every night. Can't sleep. The only time he sleeps is when he gets so drunk that he passes out. So his wife, who's divorced him, comes back and says, you have to go to this. And she nags and nags and nags and nags. So finally he goes. And he ends up going. And it's just this beautiful, beautiful point in which Billy Graham, he says, you know, he's like, all, all of the suffering, all the pain of life has meaning. But the question, the only thing that God asks of man is do you have faith? Will you believe it? Will you believe that mercy is possible? Will you believe that sacrifice and pain have meaning? Will you believe in forgiveness? And he said all of a sudden at that point, he freaked out and started throwing over stuff and like running out, like pushing people out of the way. He wanted out so bad. And all of a sudden he stopped. And he remembered at that moment that when he was on his life raft on day like 30, that he had made a promise to God. And when he's laying in that life raft, he said, Lord, I don't really know who you are or what you're about. But if you save me from this, I will give you my life. And he said he remembered that. And all of a sudden, everything, he said there was something that just like covered him. And he said that night he went home and he grabbed all of his alcohol bottles and dumped them down the sink. He grabbed all of his porn magazines and threw them out, all of his cigarettes, all of his, got rid of all of it. He slept through the whole night. Not a dream about the bird, his tormentor. He eventually then uh, went back uh, to Japan, and he went into a room with all of his prison guards, something like 200 and some of them, right? And he said he went up to them, and he shook their hands, smiling. And he said, I had forgiven every one of them. And it was all because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the one that healed the wound, whatever that wound was. And that's different for all of you. You didn't get, you know, <laughs> hit with a belt buckle in your temple by a prison guard or punched in the face 220 times or suffer from 90 pounds of weight loss because you're eating little rice balls. And if he can, if, if Zamperini has the power to forgive somebody like this Watanabe, I think there's hope for us. I really do. And if, Ju if Jesus can forgive Peter, and, and, and he could even forgive Judas, he can forgive you. But that's what, the reason I cover Judas is because I want you to realize, gentlemen, that without him, you don't know how to be a man. You will turn into a Judas 
If you never come to know Jesus, you will turn into a Judas. A Judas. If Jesus is just a teacher for you, if he's just some historical figure for you, if he's just some sort of, I don't know, master moralist for you, or some freaking just guy that had a good message, you will become Judas in one way or another. And you will sell him for all types of stuff. And maybe you sold him already, but the good news is, is there's mercy, there's forgiveness. And with Christ, everything has meaning. Even the worst of your sins, even the most terrible things you have done can be redeemed. So there's hope. Okay? Five-minute break. Be back at 810.